If you want to uh, make your way into a seat here. It's time. Uh, let's pray and then we'll start. God, thank you for this morning, for the chance for us to gather together as a church family and to worship you, Lord, to have fellowship with one another and to look at your word, God, to sing to you, to take communion alongside each other. Lord, I pray that the chance to do those things on Sunday mornings would be something that we cherish, that we treasure and look forward to. God, I pray that In all the various elements of our time together this morning, God, that you would be glorified and exalted, God, in a posture that is praising you and exalting Christ in all things. God, I pray that you would speak clearly to each of us this morning, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would take the truth of your word and impress it into our hearts, God, that we would respond obediently as is necessary and appropriate for us, God, and that we would do so not in order to earn your favor, God, but that we would do so because of your love for us. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Like, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, maybe, maybe a little more recent, but sometime in recent history, having dinner with someone went from the uh, necessary trouble to just find the date and the time that would work for one another to finally get together, but also now it requires settling the calendar issues and then asking a very crucial follow-up question. Do you have any food allergies or food sensitivities that we should be aware of? I don't know when that transition took place, but it is a standard part of getting together and having meals together. And the reason is because we want to be sensitive to one another. We understand that if we're hosting somebody at our house for dinner and we're going to cook something that their comfort is more important than our getting to have dairy or gluten at that particular meal. And so we're sensitive for the sake of someone else. It's a standard part of what we do. We don't really think about it too much now. It's just a standard part of the way that we interact with one another. It's not mandatory. You wouldn't have to do that. You could say, you know what, I'm making gluten and you can either pass on it or I'm making gluten, you don't make gluten. I'm making things with, I grew it in the back. I'm making something with gluten and you can either skip it or you can be in internal distress for the next 24 hours. That's not how we operate with each other. We understand that the gluten or the dairy or the the fill-in-the-blank food allergy, that that item is unnecessary to actually enjoy a meal with one another. It's non-essential, and so we're sensitive. Romans 14, which we started looking at last week, gives us this picture that a gospel-centered individual expresses a love within the body of Christ that is sensitive. That's how we interact with one another. Compelled by the gospel, 
We think about each other. We're sensitive toward one another. We're working through this chapter in two parts. We did verses 1 through the first part of 13 last week. We're going to pick up in 13 and work through 23 this week. But the overriding point of the entire chapter is the same, and it's this, that the extraordinary grace of the gospel shapes how we interact with one another in ordinary matters. Due to the weather and the holiday weekend, some were either unable or chose not to be with us last Sunday. So a fairly decent recap of the first 13 verses of this is necessary, so we're all on the same page. If you were here, hopefully this is just a good reminder of what uh, we worked through last week. If you weren't here, hopefully this gets us all uh, into the same vein as we jump into the second half of this chapter. Over the course of the year, we've been working through the book of Romans, and we've been doing that in order to put some skin on our vision here to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Romans is the lens by which we've been seeing that a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is gospel-centered, that someone who has received God's grace by faith in Christ builds their life, not just their salvation, on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that it influences everything that we do, the decisions that we make, the way we interact with the people around us. Romans 14 gives us a wonderfully clear picture of exactly how it is that the gospel can impact our daily decisions. In the first half of Romans chapter 14, Paul lays out that in non-essential matters, what verse 1 calls disputed matters, we are to accept one another, not to argue. That's the thrust of what Paul has to say here in Romans chapter. Issues of theological difference. It might be preferences in worship style or frequency of communion or the way that baptism is administered. They can also be personal issues, personal decisions about whether or not someone drinks alcohol, whether uh, we send our kids to private school or public school or we homeschool them. Decisions about how much affluence is too much affluence, what we do regarding certain holidays. These are disputed matters. Remember, Romans 14 is not talking about issues of clear biblical command. There are plenty of places throughout Scripture where the Bible is very clear on how it is that not just Christians are to relate to each other or are to behave, but the Bible is very clear on how it is that humanity flourishes best under the lordship of the creator of the universe. So a disputed matter is not something like murder. You don't get in a conversation with someone and say, well, I mean, I guess we just think differently about whether or not I should kill that person. Agree to disagree. That's not what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 14. Paul's talking about issues where the Bible does not make a clear statement on whether something is sinful or not sinful. They tend to be around matters of practice within the church or issues of secondary importance. In Romans 14, Paul gives the illustration of whether or not a person should eat meat and whether or not someone should observe certain Old Testament festival days. The general principle on these matters is to not argue and certainly not to elevate them into positions of primary importance whereby the unity of the church ends up compromised. Paul then goes on, beginning in verse 2, to give four extraordinary graces of the gospel that underlie how it is that we are to interact with each other. 
What is it about the gospel in an individual's life that makes it so that we would prioritize unity as a body over our opinions in non-essential secondary matters? Look at the end of verse 3 if you've got your Bible open. Paul says, one does not, the one who does not eat meat must not judge one who does because God has accepted them. That's one extraordinary grace of the gospel. God has accepted your brothers and sisters in Christ because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. By his blood, we've all been brought together. And if God has accepted those individuals, then we should not condemn someone who chooses to do differently than us. And we also shouldn't be condescending towards someone who chooses to do differently than us. Starting in verse 4 down through verse 9, Paul points out this extraordinary grace that Christ is Lord over all. Look in the middle of verse 6. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat it. And he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. Christ is Lord over all things. That means that we don't need to ignore our convictions. We can have opinions based on biblical principles about these non-essential matters, and Christ is Lord over it all. So we don't need to ignore those convictions. We also don't need to neglect our conscience. The Holy Spirit within you, your conscience might tell you that you should or should not engage in a particular behavior that is non-essential. It's something that the Bible would consider an open-handed issue or a secondary issue. We don't need to neglect that. Christ is Lord. Look at the very beginning of verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you despise your brother or sister? The third grace of the gospel that Paul points out here in Romans chapter 14 is that they the person on the other side of the issue from you, are family. You've been brought into the family of Christ. When you received God's grace by faith in Jesus, you got all of these brothers and sisters in Christ. And now we're bonded together as a family. That is an amazing grace. We're present for each other in order to support and encourage one another. We're present for each other in moments of hardship and pain. We're present with one another in order to lovingly and gently remind each other of sin. We're present with each other in order to walk alongside each other. And that means we don't cast one another away over secondary trivial matters. And we certainly don't criticize someone who has a different opinion from us. And then beginning at the end of verse 10, down through the end of verse 12, Paul reminds us the judgment is coming. And that is a grace of the gospel because in that moment of judgment, you don't need to cower in fear. If you've received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, then in your moment of judgment, you will be declared innocent because of his work. You will stand in that moment. You also don't need to climb into the bench and try to become the judge. God has that covered. He's got it taken care of. Finally, the first sentence of verse 13 says, Therefore, let us not judge one another. Paul gives that final encouragement. Don't judge. And that allows us to pick up with where we are this morning. So if you'll look, beginning in verse 13, I'm just going to read the rest of Romans chapter 14. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. 
I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one, it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that is not from faith is sin. Here's what we're going to see this morning. Two more extraordinary graces of the gospel, and then rather than a list of things not to do, that's what we talked through last week, don't condemn, don't condescend, Don't ignore your convictions. Don't neglect your conscience. Don't cast away. Don't criticize. Don't climb into the bench. Don't cower in fear. This morning, we're going to see two things that we are to do in order to pursue this kind of peace and unity within the body of Christ. And actually, that list of things to do is going to continue into the first part of Romans chapter 15. Then at the end this morning, I want to offer a few encouragements about how we actually make these things a reality in the local church. So, What is the fifth gospel grace in Romans chapter 14? It's the first one that we'll see this morning. And it is this, that Christ died for us. And because Christ died for us, we can defer to one another. Paul starts off in Romans 14 verse 13. He says, therefore, let us no longer judge. And then he tells us what to do. Instead, decide never. This is a decision you make ahead of time. That as brothers and sisters in Christ, we've already decided that we will or we will not do something in a given situation. When I know of a difference or a struggle for my Christian sister or brother, I've already determined what I'm going to do. There's not going to be a moment in the middle of an interaction where I think to myself, oh, how am I supposed to interact here? Because I've predetermined how I'm going to act. And then Paul goes on to tell us what that predetermined decision should be. Never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of a brother or sister. Those two words, stumbling block and pitfall, yours might say hindrance instead of pitfall. They actually have two uh, slightly different meanings. That's why Paul chooses to, to make both statements. A stumbling block is something that is carelessly or accidentally left in someone's way and causes them to stumble. Let me give an illustration. Parents, you're walking around in your living room. It's dark. You told the kids to clean up their toys, but one Lego is left on the floor like a sniper. You're walking through that room and you can guarantee with 100% certainty that in the pitch black, your foot is going to find that one Lego every time. And with your sleeping children upstairs, you're going to try to have an outburst appropriately. That is like a stumbling block. It was unintentional. It was carelessly left in the way, unless your child was upset with you and like a little mercenary left one Lego in the middle of the room just to trip you up. Carelessly left in the way that you might unintentionally do something that would cause a brother or sister to stumble. Paul says, decide beforehand that you'll never do that. 
The next word is pitfall, or your translation might say hindrance. That's something that is done intentionally, something left deliberately in order to ensnare someone else. The best illustration I could think of uh, for this was like the traps that Kevin leaves in Home Alone for the intruders, right? Paint cans that swing down the stairs and smack them in the face, marbles on the floor in the doorway so that when they come in, they trip. Those are intentional. They're intended to ensnare or trip up those burglars. Paul says, make a decision ahead of time never to intentionally or unintentionally do something that would cause your brother or your sister to stumble. One commentator describes it this way. We must determine not to be a witting or unwitting cause of a brother's stumbling as we exercise our Christian freedom. Paul then, in verse 14, returns to his illustration about food. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. Notice that Paul has conviction. He knows. He is convinced. Nothing is unclean. And his conviction is brought about by biblical principle. Jesus himself said that it isn't what goes into a person or what goes into a person that makes them come unclean, but rather what comes out of a person. So Paul says, food is not the thing that is sinful. I have a conviction, Paul says. But then he goes on in the second half of 14. Still, to someone who considers the thing to be unclean, to that one, it is unclean. We'll come back to this at the end, but in verse 14, Paul highlights what we talked about last week, that convictions and conscience matter. Paul has a conviction. Nothing is unclean. Someone else's conscience tells them that they shouldn't eat something. And so both of those things matter. We don't have to ignore or neglect either one of them. Instead, verse 15, Paul says, we get brought back to the primacy of love in all things. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Whether wittingly or unwittingly, intended or not, accidental or intentional, if you make faithfulness and obedience and peaceful Christian living harder for your sister or brother, you're not walking in love. Martin Luther says this, We are all immensely free in Christ. Our only bondage is the bond of love to our fellow believers. Burton Throckmorton, who was a pastor in the uh, early and mid-1900s, says it this way, For Christians, love is the standard and love is the motive. Paul is consistent in his criterion. One is free to love. One is not free not to love. As brothers and sisters in Christ, if our decision makes it harder for us to walk in unity or harder for our brother and sister not to stumble into sin, then we're no longer operating in love toward one another. Let me just make a quick statement on the other side of this. Love also demands that there are points at which we don't defer to each other. We don't defer on the reality of sin and its clear biblical commands. When our brother or sister is openly walking in sin, we lovingly, gently, confront them with the truth. We do so out of love for them because we know that sin comes with consequences that could have grave impacts in the life of that brother or sister. 
We also don't defer on the exclusivity of faith in Christ as the only means towards salvation. We don't defer on any of the theological gospel truths that Paul's laid out in Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11. Those are not secondary matters. They are primary. On primary matters, we do not defer. On secondary, non-essential, open-handed matters, out of love, we defer. And here's the reason why. The end of verse 15. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. There's the extraordinary grace of the gospel. The ultimate picture of love. The standard from which Christian love derives its model. And the standard for that love is sacrifice. The depth of our love for our brothers and sisters is to be patterned after the depth of God's love for them. The question we are to ask ourselves always when we're interacting with someone else is how much does God love this person? And the answer is always infinitely and to his own death. If Christ loves your brother and sister that much, we can defer to one another. We can and should joyfully and voluntarily limit our freedom out of love for our fellow believers. Why? Because of the gospel. Christ died. That is an extraordinary grace. I can defer. That is a gospel-centered action. Let me give a few examples. Men, you might know that one of your brothers in Christ struggles with lust and pornography, You might know that in the middle of that struggle, one of the common triggers or temptations for that is online activity, YouTube. And so you're going about your work week and you stumble across a video that you think is really funny. It's morally neutral. It is not causing anyone to sin, but it could be the rabbit hole by which your brother goes deeper and deeper into YouTube and ends up in the same struggle that he's been battling for years. In love, defer. He doesn't need to see the video. It's totally fine. Are you wrong to watch it? Absolutely not. Do you need to bring it up with that individual? No. In love, we can make a sacrifice. You'd probably really enjoy sharing a laugh with that brother, but it's just unnecessary. And so you defer. Here's another one. Ladies, you might know that your sister struggles with feeling like she has to keep up with the Joneses around the house that she needs to build a home that looks a certain way and matches the neighborhood or matches the community of people that she regularly interacts with, that that can lead her down this path of materialism and feeling like she needs to buy and spend more than is available to their family. And so maybe when your neighbor or your sister-in-law or someone does some very nice update or remodel to the kitchen, you just don't need to share it. Yeah, maybe you love the tile, The backsplash is beautiful. The new sink is just breathtaking. But she doesn't need to see it because that could send her down a particular path and cause her to sin. Is remodeling the kitchen wrong? No. Is wanting to look at it wrong? Absolutely not. That's not sinful. But it could cause your sister to stumble. One more. Your sister or brother has decided not to drink alcohol because they know that the boundary of moderation is something that's hard for them. So I think we could all pretty quickly agree that we probably shouldn't drink in front of that brother or sister. That could very easily cause them to go down a path that they've tried to decide and set a boundary is not wise for them. It would also be smart, though, to defer on the restaurant that we suggest. 
maybe you don't invite that person to a place that's a bar or a place where there's a brewery attached and the alcohol is one of the central features of that restaurant. You can have a great meal somewhere else. You can defer on that particular matter. Christ died, we can defer. Our love is to be sensitive in this way, that we would put no stumbling block, no pitfall, no hindrance in front of our brother or sister. The last, the sixth, but the second for today, extraordinary grace of the gospel picks up in verse 16. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. We live in the king's kingdom. That is the glorious grace of the gospel. And therefore, where he rules, kindness rules. Let me just step through the verses. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. If you've received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, then you live in Christ's kingdom. You will live in it for all of eternity and you live in it now. He will come back one day and he will firmly and finally and fully establish that kingdom. And all those who have received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ will live with him eternally. That is an amazing grace. But we also live in it now. And as the church... As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to be working toward kingdom realities here and now underneath the lordship of Christ. We won't see them come to fruition perfectly because the world is stained and marred by sin. But we are to be working in that direction here and now. Between his ascension and his second coming, we want to see the kingdom expanded. And Paul goes on to say, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, those are what the kingdom is about. Christ's kingdom is not a matter of externals. Jesus talks about that all the time in the Gospels. It's a matter of eternals. But the eternals impact the externals. Here's what I mean. Righteousness. Righteousness is the defining element to the king's kingdom. He reigns in righteousness. All those who have received his grace by faith in Christ have been made righteous before him and are able to walk in righteousness thanks to the grace and the Holy Spirit that empowers us to do so. Peace. Righteousness leads to peace. You have peace with God thanks to the work of Christ on the cross. And as we walk in righteousness, we experience the internal peace of living according to his word and his command. As we walk in righteousness, we experience the external peace of living in harmony with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And also, Paul goes on to say, with the approval of others even outside of the church. Now, as followers of Jesus, will we always live in harmony with the world around us? No. The New Testament in Jesus makes that very clear. There will be points where the life that the gospel calls us to puts us into tension with the world around us, and there will not be peace there. That's okay. It is to be expected if we're holding to the truth of Scripture. And yet, within the church, that peace should always exist. And last, there is joy. Where there is peace because of righteousness, there is joy. Knowing that we have eternal peace with God leads us to joy in his presence and joy in our circumstances. Knowing we have peace with one another leads us to joy in our relationships, joy in the big C church, and joy inside our local churches. And so Paul says, let us pursue what promotes peace. That's verse 19 and builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. We need to be intentional in not laying the Lego 
in the living room or the traps in the doorway. No stumbling blocks, no pitfalls, no hindrances as we intentionally pursue what promotes peace. Paul goes on in verse 21. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. The root word there for good, it is a good thing, is the same root word um, in Greek for the word beautiful. It is a beautiful thing to defer, to be kind in this sort of way. Charles Cranfield says this better than I could, so I'm just going to read it from him. He says, such behavior is thought of as beautiful because it shows there is love among the brethren. It is beautiful because arrogance is gone. It is beautiful because it is unselfish. It is beautiful because it means that we have a finely tuned sense of spiritual proportion, recognizing secondary issues for what they are. It is especially cross because it puts others first, as Christ did in his life and most supremely on the cross. It is good, beautiful for us to pursue that kind of kindness and that kind of peace. Then in verse 22, Paul says, Whatever you believe about these things, Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. The easiest way to let kindness rule and to promote peace is to be judicious about what you choose to say. Sometimes it's better to just remain silent rather than jump into a conversation or debate or debate that might cause another person to sin, that might cause another person to violate their conscience, or that might rupture the unity within the church. That ties us back up to the first verse of chapter 14 that we're not to argue about these matters. If you can't not argue, then don't speak. That's the kindest way to interact. In the words of the great philosopher and theologian Thumper from Bambi, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. If you can't say something that doesn't spark an argument, just keep it between you and God. Talk about, be about what promotes peace, what is kind. And in the places where you can't do that, Paul says, keep it to yourself. Let me give a few examples on this side. You might know that some of your social media posts have caused some dissension between you and someone in your small group or you and someone in the church. You're getting ready to fire off another one, and you remember the battle that took place in the comments last time. And so out of kindness, you decide not to post it. You defer. Is what you are about to say wrong? Maybe not. Is sharing on Facebook sinful? Not in general, though it can get out of hand. Is doing so always the best way to promote peace? Maybe not. And so we're judicious judicious about what we choose to say or what we don't. You might have a friend who is more sensitive to the language in movies or on television than you are. Parents, you might know that the parent of a child that you have over at your house one day is more cautious with the content of movies and television than you might choose to be. And so out of kindness, you choose not to watch the show or show the movie that you know is hard for someone else to stomach. That promotes peace. It allows kindness to rule. You defer. Here's a corporate one. You travel for Christmas and your family invites you to go to their church. It's far more traditional than this one or the church that you normally attend. And if you're being honest, you don't particularly like it. Defer. Go. And don't just go, but also don't make it known that you don't want to be there. Instead, go. And you sing that four-part harmony on verses one, two, and four of that hymn with all of your might. 
You go and you say the corporate prayers and you do the liturgical things from the depth of your soul because it's about great beauties of the charm that it takes anyway. Kindness rules. This is one of the great beauties of the church. We're all deferring to one another in real time every single week. You might come in here one Sunday morning and you don't particularly love the song that the worship team chose to play. And you defer. You sing it. It doesn't matter. We're going to sing some other songs anyway, so it's not a big deal. You might wish we took communion more or less. And so you come and you defer. You might wish the music was shorter, that I wouldn't talk so long, that I would be funnier, whatever the case might be. And we defer to one another in real time. That's one of the beauties of the gathered local church is that we understand that there are issues that are primary and there are issues that are secondary. And on the secondary ones, we defer for the sake of unity and for the joy of worshiping alongside one another. When we start to treat church like a commodity rather than treating church like a family, we start to make the secondary issues primary. And we say, I'm just looking for a place where I can get all of my secondary things met so that I can go there and worship. That's not treating the church like a family. A family makes sacrifices for one another under the banner of their shared common familyhood. That's what the church does. We defer out of kindness to one another. One final word here on verse 23. Paul concludes this paragraph by saying, but whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that is not from faith is sin. This is the importance of our individual conscience. Our conscience is not perfect. It's an infallible guide that must be molded by the truth of Scripture in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so to use Paul's example, there were people in the Roman church who ate meat, probably Gentiles who didn't have this Old Testament background that certain meat sacrificed to idols shouldn't be eaten. And so they made a decision from faith. I have liberty. Nothing is unclean. I'm going to eat this meat. But if eating would have violated the conscience of one of their likely Jewish brothers or sisters, then that person couldn't make that decision from a position of faith. Their faith tells them that not eating that meat is best. That's a decision made in light of their belief in Jesus. To have gone against their conscience and to decide against what their belief in Christ compelled them to do, Romans 14.23 tells us, is sin. If you can't make that decision out of your faith and the principles of the Bible, then it would be a sin to go ahead and do so. There are some assumptions in this passage that are worth pointing out. So I want to end with some encouragements, things that we need to build within ourselves. They aren't stated in the text explicitly, but they're obviously true if you just think a little bit about what Paul is saying here in Romans 14. And they force us outside the bounds of some of our cultural tendencies. We must have into this kind of gospel-centered, sensitive love for one another. The first one is this. We must develop an awareness of our own sin struggles. The Roman believers knew their struggles and their questions. Paul gives the illustration of certain meats or certain festival days. We have to be honest with ourselves about these things. Where do you stand on these matters? We need to regularly and humbly get before the Lord and allow him to make our sin struggles clear to us, even on issues of clear biblical command. What causes you to stumble? Whether it be a non-essential a secondary matter, 
or a clear scriptural command? What are those things? Self-awareness is a huge tool for us in the fight for sanctification. If I'm not aware of the issues that cause me to sin, the environments that cause me to sin, I'm just going to keep doing them. The next one is this. We must develop an awareness of others' sin struggles. I can't be sensitive if I only know my sin struggles internally. We have to know one another well enough that we know each other's. And we need to know those sin struggles, not in a judgmental sort of way. Remember, you're not climbing into the bench, but in a loving and sensitive sort of way. We need to love and care about one another enough to feel comfortable sharing. And that doesn't mean that you bear your soul and all your temptations to all the people that go to this church. That would be a lot of people in an exhausting exercise. But there should be some that you're close to that you share openly and transparently with about the issues that cause you to sin or the places where someone's lack of sensitivity made it very hard for you to follow your conscience and your own convictions. We can't be sensitive toward others and people can't be sensitive toward us in the ordinary matters of life if we're not willing to share with one another. Our society makes it hard to live in genuine and transparent relationship. Just about everything pulls us in the opposite direction, but the church should be different. We should wrestle and we should fight to make that kind of genuine safety and transparency and vulnerability possible. We should long to be sensitive to one another and therefore to be close enough to each other that we know how to be sensitive. Third, we need to develop a hatred for sin. If you're kind of passe about your own sin, kind of indifferent toward it, you'll never be sensitive towards sin in another person's life. The starting point for you in this might be to get on your knees and ask God to give you a passionate hatred for sin. I'm a firm believer that you can hate only three things in life, three and only three, Satan, sin, and spiders. They all start with S. It's easy to remember. We have to hate our own sin enough that we would want our sisters and brothers to be sensitive toward us so that we don't fall into it. We also need to hate sin in general enough that we would long to defer and be sensitive to our brothers and sisters in Christ so that they might not fall into it. Jesus hated sin enough that it might play itself out. We should hate it enough that our truest joy comes in obedience to him and might play itself out, therefore, in deference toward one another. And last, we must develop a better or a greater perspective. There's a juxtaposition that takes place a few times throughout this text. At one point, Paul says, do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. At another point, he says, don't tear down God's work because of food. He wants us to see the absurdity of taking a non-essential issue and making it a big deal. Don't destroy your brother or sister for a plate of food at dinner time. Don't tear down what God is trying to do in someone's life because of some unimportant, trivial matter. It's my opinion that we spend far too little time thinking about the brevity of life and the glory of eternity. If we thought about those two things more, our desires would change completely. You have concern about the food allergies of your guest because in the long run, their comfort is far more important than your gluten intake. The perspective of eternity helps us to see that foregoing some of our Christian liberty on behalf of our brothers and sisters is of little consequence. And yet the love shown in such acts is of great consequence. And the unity that results in the church could be of eternal consequence to those outside. The grace of the gospel is extraordinary. God has accepted 
us. Christ is Lord over all. We've got this unbelievable family of believers. Judgment is coming. Christ died for us. Those are unbelievable gospel graces. And now we live in the king's kingdom. The grace of the gospel is extraordinary to save. The grace of the gospel is extraordinary to sanctify. And it should be extraordinary to create sensitivity in how we interact with one another. The way we live gospel-centered lives is to continually remind ourselves of that grace. And one of the ways that we remind ourselves of the grace of the gospel is that we take communion. Communion takes the grace of the gospel and gets it in front of us in a tangible, tactile sort of way. If you're someone who's going to pass out our communion, would you come up and grab these and start to distribute that for our congregation? As these come down the row, you'll notice that there, uh, there are some wafers in the middle and there are stacks of two cups. If you need gluten-free body of Christ, it's in the middle. If you can eat a regular gluten, glutinous body of Christ, take a two stack of cups and the wafer is in the bottom cup. When we eat the bread, we're reminded of the depth of Christ's love for us. We're reminded that we have sin that needs to be forgiven. That Christ went to the cross, allowing his body to be broken on our behalf for the forgiveness of that sin. When we drink the cup, we're reminded that Christ's blood has brought us eternal righteousness, eternal peace, and eternal joy. In both of those, we see the extraordinary grace of the gospel and are brought back to a reflection about how that gospel is impacting our lives. Is it creating within us a sensitivity toward the people around us? Is it creating within us a longing for greater obedience? Is it creating within us a desire to live in unity with all those who gather together under the banner of grace? As we go to take communion this morning, I want us to take just a moment of stillness and silence before the Lord to individually reflect on the grace of the cross and to allow the Lord to speak to our hearts about how that grace can continue to impact our ordinary interactions with one another in silence. As these elements are passed out, let's just take a moment to sit in silence. You before the Lord. Where is it that you might need to defer to a brother or sister? Is there a conflict, an argument that exists between you and someone else within the body of Christ that might need to be reconciled? Are there areas of sin in your own life? that you need to either confess and repent or that you might need to go to with a brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, can you help me in this by doing the following? Spend a few minutes in reflection before the Lord. If you're someone who attends our church regularly, uh, you'll notice that this isn't the normal week that we take communion. Uh, We're going to begin doing this twice a month rather than once. On the first Sunday of every month, we'll do it corporately within the context of our sermon and our worship time like this. 
on the third Sunday of the month, we'll continue to take it as families where you have the opportunity to go and to pray with your children before they go back to class. The reason we want to increase the amount that we do this is because we think it matters to get grace in front of our eyes like this in a tangible and a tactile way to see the body of Christ and the blood of Christ broken and poured out on our behalf. It's important for us to remember the grace of the gospel in this sort of way. So I'm gonna take a moment to pray and then we will all take this alongside each other. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for reminders of the extraordinary grace of the gospel. God, that that grace ties us together as a family and as a family, we should prize unity above all else. God, that that would lead us to defer in matters that are non-essential to one another. Cause us to interact under the primacy of love and in kindness toward one another, God, and that we would do so because of the gospel, not to earn your favor, but because Christ died for us, because we now live in the kingdom and we long to allow the king to rule there. God, I pray that as we take this, Lord, that we would see Christ on the cross and we would hear his voice lovingly reminding us that he went there willingly on our behalf, that he became a sacrifice for our sin, that his blood was poured out for our guilt, God. And would we be supremely thankful? But would we also be motivated to live in light of such a reality? God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ poured out for you. Would the extraordinary grace of the gospel guide how we interact as a family in ordinary matters? Let's worship alongside each other. You can stand up.